I hope you're going to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 18. We're going to be going to a couple different places, but we'll camp out at least at the beginning in 2 Kings 18. Uh, Last year, I had the privilege of speaking through, or last year and a half or so, I had the privilege of speaking through both of the books, both historical books in the Old Testament, 1 and 2 Kings. And uh, I found them to be some of my most favorite books in all of the scriptures uh, with uh, all kinds of historical events that happen. But mostly because they show us uh, primarily the providence of God throughout all of history. Uh, But in 2 Kings 18 there's this like blink and you'll miss it sort of reference. Uh, that I think shows us exactly what happens when the truth of God is, uh, we could say, degraded or demeaned or we could say defaced. And it happens and you have to really pay attention because it goes by in a flash. In 2 Kings 18, we're going to be given an overview of the great revival and reformation of the kingdom of Judah under the, under the auspices of King Hezekiah. Who comes to the throne very early on in his life and within the first month of his reign, he leads this kingdom-wide reformation. And it begins really early on as the chronicler tells us. And all of it leads the people of God back to a right worship of the one true God, Jehovah. Notice what happens. I'm going to read the first seven verses. It says, in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. And he was 25 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses has made. For until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him. Nor among those who were before him. For he held fast. To the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord God commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went out, he prospered. You can see right away, he brings all of Judah who had wandered from the Lord back to a right place of worship of the one true God. He's cutting down idols, he's tearing down places of idol worship, and he's bringing these people of God back to a commitment to God and God alone. And he's bucking the the recent history in the kingdom of Judah. If you remember back from your Sunday school days perhaps, you'll know that Israel, they went off the rails really quickly. Judah at least somewhat held their own for a long while. But in these waning days of this divided kingdom before exile comes, Judah itself starts to teeter. And yet here there's this huge sweeping movement that brings the hearts of these people back to Yahweh. If you, you don't have to go there, but if you go to Second Chronicles 29, you're given sort of the parallel story of this. And he goes to even greater lengths to show you how sweeping this reform was, spending three whole chapters on exactly what Hezekiah did to bring the people of God back to a right worship of God. And the long and short of it is, is that there was no nook or cranny, basically, in all of Judah that was left untouched by this, we could say, reforming and reviving fire. And part of this reformation, of course, 
as we noted, uh, was uh, the, the, the destruction of all kinds of idols and images that had been set up for the people to worship by Hezekiah's predecessors. Judah, by this time in history, had become just like their pagan neighbors. And in terms of, they were almost, we could say, an idol factory. They were making all kinds of images for people to bow down to, all kinds of relics and, and icons. So you can imagine if you just put yourself in the shoes of, of a person in Judah right here in Second Kings 18, it must have felt when Hezekiah came to the throne like a bull in a china shop. He's just running all over the place, running rampage over the lands of Judah, just tearing down things, burning things, making everything back to where it should be. Destroying places of worship that had grown to replace Yahweh. It just so happens, though, that one of these images that fell to the ground, that fell victim to this reviving fire of Hezekiah, if you will, was this beloved heirloom of the people of Israel. Did you notice it back in verse 4? Notice what happens. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it, calling it Nehushtan. Let's pause. Because you see, within Judah, there had, become, uh, there had been erected, we could say, a special shrine, a special little house of worship for this bronze, the serpent made of brass that was forged by none other than Moses himself. And people had come, they would come long distances to come and not just pray, but to burn incense and to make all kinds of offerings before this little idol. And Hezekiah sees this as an abomination. He sees it for what it is. It is an abomination to the Lord that's demeaning of the name, the Lord. And he even gives it that name, Nehushtan, is literally just Hebrew for a thing of brass. And you get the image in your mind's eye that Hezekiah is here calling this thing that people are bowing to and paying homage to. He's saying, you're praying to just a hunk of bronze. You're praying to nothing but a piece of metal. And this is not in the text, but I imagine because, he, as it says, he breaks it in pieces that he grabs it from out of the shelf in that little shrine. And he goes into the public square and he just throws it and smashes it in the streets. And he calls it for what it is. Nehushtan, thing of brass. You can imagine the looks of the people of Judah as he did that, right? What in the world? What's, what's got you all fired up, Hezekiah? What's going on? Devastation cover those people's faces. I, the, the image in my mind, it goes to those, you know, those scenes like when a national title, like fo- football team wins the, the national championship. And you know, in the, in the college football national championship where they get a, a football made of crystal. <laughs> and you've seen those, those scenes where everyone's on the podium, the coach, it drops. They're celebrating too much. And then the, the crystal ball is all over the floor in pieces. <laughs> it's sad. It's devastating. Times that by about 700 years of tradition, and you get what's happening here. (laughs) All of that tradition, all of that preciousness, the the, the value that the people put into that little bronze serpent, and now it's in pieces, it's in shards, in the streets. 
Here this hotshot king is not only just openly mocking, but now he's actively destroying a priceless piece of Israelite history. What in the world, man? (laughs) Well, I think to understand why he's doing this, we have to understand, again, what this bronze serpent was supposed to mean. And maybe you're familiar with the story. Flip back to Numbers chapter 21. We'll go back to 2 Kings 18 in a moment, but go to Numbers 21. This is where we get the story, the original story of the brass serpent. And here we're given another instance of uh, perhaps that's familiar throughout the history of the people of Israel. As they've made the exodus out of Egypt and we're given this little glimpse again of their griping and their moaning about their situation. Notice verse 4 of number 21 from Mount Hor, that was Mount Horeb. They set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out, up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and there is no water and we loathe this worthless food. Remember, God has already provided for them, not just in the Exodus, but he's also provided for them in the raining down of manna. They're not going hungry. They're not starving. They're still complaining. It's too hot. It's, it's, there's no food. Are we there yet? Which sounds like your back seat in your car on the way home. And as a result, what happens? They're moaning and they're murmuring and they're griping. The Lord sends a flood of venomous snakes into their camp, leading many of them to die. Notice verse 6, <clears throat> that the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people, they see this obviously for the devastation that it is. And they approach Moses and they they begin to plead with him to do something. Please do something about the snakes. Please do something about our predicament. And they repent. Notice verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord. Pray to Yahweh that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And that's that's when Moses is given the most curious of orders from the Lord himself. Because he's told to forge a serpent out of brass and hold it up for everyone to see. And that yet, when everyone looks upon that brass serpent, they would live, they would be healed. Notice verse 8. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Suddenly that field of wounded and dying Israelites starts to burst with life. All because the serpent made of bronze is held up on a pole for the people to see. That serpent in Moses' hands, it's a bona fide miracle. As people start to live, not just live, but people start to regain their life again. Now fast forward from this moment, 700 years later. That's 2 Kings 18. And what do we find? That same brass serpent, 
still around. Having been carefully preserved like a priceless, precious heirloom of Israelite history. And even more than that, it's enclosed in a glass case. And people are coming to this thing. It's like a pilgrimage. Have you seen the brass serpent in Judah? Have you seen this thing? Have you seen what this thing is and what it means? And now people are burning incense to it. They're praying to it. They're making this thing into something that it's not. They've turned this thing that was supposed to be an instrument of the people's worship to remind them of where their deliverance came from into an object of worship itself. They've turned it into an idol. They've turned this thing that was meant to be an instrument of the people's healing, of the people's deliverance. It was supposed to be the, a thing that would channel the people's gaze to fix it on the one true deliverer and healer. And now instead, it's become an object of worship itself. It's become an idol. It's become a thing of brass that the people think holds some sort of special magical power. And folks are going to it, seeking something from it, hoping to be blessed by it. No wonder King Hezekiah, who is just entranced, we could say, with the right worship of Yahweh, sees that for what it is. It's swindling the people's hearts. So he takes it out of that glass case and he throws it on the ground. Nahushtan, a thing of brass. <laughs> what was formerly a blessing was now a disgrace. It didn't, it didn't matter what that brass serpent meant to grandma. It didn't, it didn't matter how cherished it was, how valuable it was. It didn't matter what uh, people uh, were looking to get out of that thing. It was, that serpent, that brass bronze trophy, we could say, was demeaning the glory of God. It was demeaning and stealing the hearts of the people of God. It was nothing but a distraction and it needed to be destroyed. It needed to be crushed. But for you and for me, there's still more. In both of these stories. Because while I don't think that Moses knew or Hezekiah knew the the true meaning of this brass serpent. We do. We have the true meaning of what the serpent means. And maybe you're already going ahead of me and that's fine. Go to John chapter 3. The most famous chapter, we could say, in all of scripture. This evening twilight conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus. All the way here, in the midst of this conversation, this brass serpent comes up once again. Notice verse 13, in the midst of this conversation that Jesus and the Pharisee are having. No one has ascended into heaven, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Pause. Jesus has just made a groundbreaking statement. Something that should make us pause. As he says, just as Moses lifted up that serpent, so too, he says, must the Messiah, the one that everyone has looked to, to bring deliverance to Israel, so must he be lifted up. Lifted up, of course, is shorthand for crucified. 
John 8, 28, John 12, 20, 12, 32. Both are, are, are other instances where Jesus uses the same language to refer to the same thing. He's looking forward to what's going to happen at the end of his life here on earth. Namely, his own death. Namely, his own death on a cross. He's looking forward, yes, to the fact that he was born to die. It's why he came. This is his mission. The cross is not optional to Jesus' reason for being in this world. It is his reason for being. This is reason for coming down from the beginning of time. He is what? Revelation 13.8. The lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And even here he's looking to that. Even within this conversation. And he's using This image of the brass serpent being lofted on a pole to get into the mind's eye of this Pharisee exactly what has to happen in order for new life to come about. You see, just as those paralyzed Israelites in the wilderness had only to look, look at that serpent in order to live, so too is believing the only requirement for sinners to be made whole, to be saved. Look and live is the same thing as believe and have eternal life. It didn't matter how far away the people were away from that snake. It didn't matter how many times they'd been bit. It didn't matter what their condition was. It didn't matter how far away they were. As long as they looked, they would be healed. I've heard pastors and preachers make all kinds of emphasis on the fact that that people had to trudge and they they had to get out of of the mud so they could get a clear glimpse of that serpent in the wilderness. (laughs) No. Just look and you will live. And Jesus says the same thing is going to happen with me. Because I am the true and better brass serpent. You just have to look and you will be saved. Believe and you will live. Jesus says that's the same thing for every single sinner who wants to enter the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how much sin you have. It doesn't matter how far away you feel. Whoever believes, he says, in the Son of Man lifted up for their sake on account of their sin. They will be saved immediately from their sin, everlastingly from their sin. Hebrews 7.25, we heard it this morning twice. They will be saved to the uttermost. Not 95% saved. And you do the extra five. Not even 99% saved. And you do the extra one. It is 100% redeemed. Welcomed into the family of God. By what? Believe and you live. Which I think brings me to. I, I would say one of the most powerful things. That appears throughout all three of these texts. Because just, just think about it. How were the people saved in Numbers 21? <laughs> A serpent made of brass is held up on a pole. Which, if you can imagine, put yourself in the sandals of a person in in Israel, in the wilderness in that moment. Serpents are the things that are killing you. 
And here Moses comes trouncing out with a serpent on a pole, and that's supposed to make me live. That seems like a really cruel joke. Hey, way to have some tact, Moses. Read the room. (laughs) There's almost never anything good that's associated with a serpent. In fact, they bear the image of the curse on them. The curse of death is put upon them by God in the garden. They're still crawling on their nasty bellies. As my dad is fond of saying, the only good one is a dead one. (laughs) Which I think makes it all the more stunning what God does. Because that emblem of curses and death is held up as what? An emblem of life. The very thing that was causing the people's death is what? Stunningly, graciously, marvelously reversed into an image, into a symbol that brings about their life. And just as the serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up on our account as well. You see, this is the great and glorious point of this whole thing. Is that Jesus Christ is the true and better bronze serpent that's held up for every sinner to look upon and believe and have eternal life. The full realization of which comes at that awful ghastly Roman cross. Where he, from when she, he descended from heaven and he finds his creatures, Jesus does. He finds his beloved ones, you and me. We are bitten half to death by sin and strangled by the venom of our evil, of the evil one that is inside of us. And he finds us there, finds us in the wilderness and he finds us in that estate. And he ascends the cross for every single sinner. For you, he does that. And there what? On that cross, he becomes the emblem of death for the sake of those who are dying. By actually dying, that what? That we might live. He saves us from sin. By what? 2 Corinthians 5.21 By being made sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God. He redeems us. Galatians 3.13 From the curse. By what? Becoming the curse for us. Christ bears all of that. The full brunt of the Father's wrath and all of the devil's venom in order that you and I might be delivered and rescued and saved to the uttermost. Saved once for all. What glorious news is that? Satan thought that he had won on that cross. But Christ proves too powerful. He reverses the pain of sin and death into what? The glorious hope of his resurrection. Where death is defeated. Death is no more. All that sting of death is sucked out. And the glorious new life that Jesus brings. And he stamps his approval on by rising out of the grave. Sin and death are no more. They're left behind. Just as Jesus left behind death in that tomb. That's what Jesus has come to do for you. This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel. You can find it all over these scriptures, all the pages of it. And the thing is, just as we noted at the beginning, Satan's going to do whatever he can to get you to not to hear it. 
to not grasp it. He will do whatever he can to twist God's word and prevent you from receiving the truth of them. He does his best to take all of these pure and precious and beloved words of God and contaminate them ever so slightly so they become something else. They become something just slightly off. Like taking an emblem of God's salvation and turning it into an idol. That's Satan's scheme. He takes something that God does and he he twists it. He's been doing that ever since the beginning. Ever since Eden, ever since the garden, Satan's business has not been necessarily in that of manufacturing things that are false. And as much as it has been sort of tainting and twisting the truth, just ever so slightly. The end result is the same, of course. But instead of convincing you of some new truth, he takes what God has said and done and he adds something to it. Just like that brass serpent. That's what Satan is. He's a trafficker of half-truths. And his game is deception. And you are his target. Just think about this in the realm of religion. You want to know the greatest hoaxes that Satan has ever pulled? The greatest hoax that he's ever pulled has been deceiving men and women into thinking that they can save themselves. So they go to church and they think that they're doing it. They do this, that, and the other thing, and they think they're making it. They're doing lots of things. But they've never looked and lived. They've never received the forgiveness that Jesus is offering as a free gift to them. They've never just believed and been raised to life. If you think that you have to do something in order for eternal life to be given to you, my friends, you've been duped by the evil one. You're bowing to a thing of brass. It cannot deliver you. It's a piece of metal. It's a piece of hogwash. And you need need a preacher to come in and throw that thing in the streets and smash it. And tell you. There is good news to be found. It's not in a piece of metal. It's not in your doings. It's not in your works. It's not anything that you can do. Tell me how to get to eternal life. Believe on the one whom he has sent, Jesus says. Believe in me, he says. The notion that man can save himself is malarkey, as my dad is famous for saying. It's a lie straight from the father's, father of lies himself. There's nothing you or I could ever do in a thousand lifetimes that could ever lead to salvation being won by us, being earned or merited by us. In fact, in the glorious sort of surprising reversal of all, Jesus just says it's right here. Just believe it. The thing that you've been searching for high and low and here and there and yon, it's right here. And my body and my blood broken for you. And my form that's been nailed to a cross. Or I became your death. Or I became your curse. Or I became your sin. All those nasty thoughts. All those evil deeds. All those words that you've said and you wish you could take back. Or the words that you haven't said but you've thought anyways. All those actions. All those rebellions. 
Every single nasty thing Jesus took on himself. You want to know why he was sweating, uh, as it were, drops of blood the night before he was crucified? Because he was bearing the weight of the world's sins on his shoulders. And not just yours, but your grandkids' and your great-grandkids' sins. The sins you haven't even committed yet, he was paying for with his own blood. So that when you come to him, he would say, you are forgiven because of me. 1 John 1, nine that says that if we are faithful and just to confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Why? Because the cross worked. <laughs> because he became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Paul tells us, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, those awesome verses that you are saved by grace. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Yet there are thousands, there are hordes of folks who still think that they can get by on their own, in their own power, in their own strength. Which is just to say that the lie of the bronze serpent is very much alive and well. The one thing that I would want anyone to know. No matter where I go, no matter who I'm preaching to, no matter how many times I get to preach... Don't believe the lie of the bronze serpent. Don't believe in the false gospel that Paul would say it's, it's not even a gospel. It's anathema. Don't be deceived by the serpent who's still very much active. There's only one savior. There's one gospel. And there's one antidote to the venom of sin and death. And it's the savior who becomes sin and death for us that we might live That's the gospel. That's it. It's believe and live. Look and be raised to newness of life. If you believe that, you are free. You are forgiven forever. You believe that and you are a part of the family of God. Everything else needs to be crushed. I... uh, I could keep going because I'm thinking about Galatians and I'm thinking about Paul as he's writing to that church there. Remember what he says in Galatians 3? Who has bewitched you? Oh, foolish Galatians. Basically, why are you guys so stupid? Don't you remember what I preached to you before? It hasn't changed. You don't just get in by grace and then you have to do all these things by your own effort. It is a work of the Spirit all the way through. And he culminates that in Galatians 3.13 with that very good news. That Christ became the curse for us who were under the curse. So that we might be made free to live for God. We are free to live for the sake of our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Your good works, they're not to get God to love you. They're not to try to win more favor. Who are they for? They're for your neighbor. They're to show everyone around you just the great work that God can do in a lost person's heart. Because you were just as lost as they were. 
And when God saves you and indwells you, your good works are for who? They're not for God, yes, maybe in one part, but really they're for your next door neighbor. So that they see the power of what God's gospel does. (laughs) It saves wretches. It raises the dead. And it brings one and all back to life. True life. True life. And it all begins with the simple proclamation. Look and live. Believe and have eternal life. This is the good news, my friends. Do you believe it? Are you, have you been made alive by looking at that crushed serpent who was crushed for your iniquities? Have you been raised to newness of life by the one becoming your death for you? I pray that you have. I pray that that is good news that is implanted deep in your soul. Because it's the only news that matters. Let us pray.